This morning, we're looking at Jesus and prayer. And within the framework of that, I've got us, whoops, a little, a little road so that you see where we're going and where we're headed and, and it'll get a flavor for what we're doing. I want to talk about what quiet time is in general and then the lessons that Jesus gives us on quiet time. In addition to that, I want to talk about listening and what it means to listen to, to God as we do this in prayer. I want to talk about privacy. And then we're going to have a vignette on the meaning behind your prayers. And finally, we will conclude by looking at the Lord's Prayer, as it is commonly called uh, today. So with that, let's get started, and we'll start with the quiet time. The passage is out of Mark 1, 35. Jesus rises very early in the morning while it's still dark. He departed... And he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, I love this passage. This is a passage that Mark did not need to put in there. Mark could have been, I mean, he's been telling the stories. He told the stories about where Jesus was and what he'd done. If we look at Mark chapter 1 together, we'll see the day that Jesus had just had. This is a passage that we find in Mark 1.35. Okay, you able to see that? But look, let's zoom out for a moment and let's see what else had been happening before that. We've got it here in chapter 1, verse 21. This is what Jesus' day had been like. They went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. He went to church in Christian talk. He went to synagogue in Hebrew talk. And he teaches. That means he doesn't just attend. That means he's one of the ones that was selected that Saturday, that Sabbath, to actually take the scriptures that were read And it would either be a a Torah passage or a passage out of the prophets. Typically the prophets for the, the, the visiting speaker. And he would stand up and teach about it. And explain what it was. They were astonished at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority. And not as the scribes. Now the scribes were people who wrote the law. But they also wrote the commentaries of the law as well. And it was very common for, if you go back and even today read our ancient copies of of these commentaries on the law. They would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, but Rabbi so-and-so says that, but Rabbi so-and-so says this. While Rabbi so-and-so quoting Rabbi so-and-so quoting Rabbi so-and-so says that. Jesus didn't do it that way. Jesus just said Here's what I have to say. And Jesus spoke on his own authority. Jesus would sometimes say it this way. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus wasn't simply quoting the other rabbis. Jesus was explaining it himself. So immediately in the synagogue, there's a man with an unclean spirit who cries out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now that can disrupt class. (laughs) Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. The unclean spirit convulses him and cries out with a loud voice and comes out. So Jesus has not only gone to synagogue. He's taught in the middle of it. There's this huge episode with the demon. Jesus casts the demon out of him. Everybody's amazed. Who is this fella? He teaches with authority. And then he's commanding the demons. And even the demons have to obey him. His fame starts spreading throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he leaves the synagogue. See that word immediately? There's a Greek word that means immediately. This wasn't, okay, now I've been to church. I think I'll go rest and watch the football game. Immediately, he left the synagogue and he goes to the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. 
Now, that might be a time for a little R&R. He's had a pretty eventful day. The synagogue service was not typically 30 or 45 minutes or even an hour long. They could be very long services. But Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And they tell him about it. So he goes over to her. And he takes her by the hand and he lifts her up and he heals her. And then she begins to serve them. Now, as they continue to eat and to work, and, and this is a working meal... At evening, sundown, they bring to him all who were sick, everybody who was oppressed by demons. The whole city gathers together at the door. And he heals many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out demons. He wouldn't permit the demons to speak because they knew him. That's the kind of day Jesus had. So if we go back to the PowerPoint... It's within that framework of a crazy, busy day that Jesus finally gets to sleep. And look, I remember one time when I was graduating from high school, Dr. Ellis, who was my pediatrician and an elder at our church, graciously, he and his wife hosted a little party for us, a kind of a graduation party. And Dr. Ellis was a, he's now passed away, he was a very particular man. He was particular in how he dressed, he was particular in how he spoke, he was particular in so many ways, and in a kind and gracious way, yet a particular way as only he could. As we all came together for the graduation party he pulled me aside and he said Mark I'm so glad we're having this but I like to go to bed early can you make sure everybody leaves at the appropriate time and I said I got this I got this there is a tendency for people to want to stay when they're having a good time and good things are happening Jesus is healing all of these people. The whole city's coming out. Look, I, I may not be sick, but if he's doing it, I want to see it. I don't want to read about it in the papers the next day that, hey, I left early before that demon went out and had the conniption fit. I would like hands-on, eyes-on opportunity to behold this. You know this lasted deep into the night. He had a crazy busy day. If anybody deserved to sleep in the next morning, it was Jesus. Yet rising very early in the morning, while it is still dark, he leaves the house, he leaves Capernaum, and he goes and he finds a desolate place where he will not be disturbed, where no one will see him, find him, whatever. And he prayed. Now, I, I don't know if he's praying because he's in the midst of a crazy busy time. Or if he's praying because of the crazy busy time and he needs the prayer. Remember, Jesus is fully God, but he's fully human. And as a human being, we need to connect with the Lord daily. Especially when it seems we don't have time to because everything's too crazy and busy. We need to. So this week, on Thursday, Becky and I had a chance to see our granddaughter, Catherine Ebba. And yeah, we saw our son and daughter-in-law too, and they're fine. But, <laughs> but we saw our granddaughter, and she's two. So here's a picture I took of her and Becky this week. And she is at such an adorable age. So is Becky. But Ebba is at such an adorable age because she's at the age where she imitates everything she says and, and, and sees. Everything she sees. If you say something, she'll practice saying it. If she, she'll watch you and you do something, she'll do it. You got to be careful. I mean, you don't want to say things like Texas A&M because she might say it. Uh, 
Sorry, Mel. Uh, You've got to be careful what you say. You also don't want to be a Red Raider and say, guns up, because they live in Washington, D.C., and if she walks around and goes, guns up, in D.C., they don't get that. That's a bad thing. But I thought, you know, here she is imitating everything. That's how she learns. Why, when I see what Jesus did, do I not want to imitate him? That's how I'll learn. I need to be the person who tries to find this quiet time. I need that daily time, especially when my schedule is so hectic and crazy that I don't have time for God. It's the reason behind the devotionals that that I've written. It's an effort to try to get, and, and by the way, we're getting close to press. That's the cover for the new devotional. And hopefully it'll be coming in, uh, it looks like in October. We'll be handing those out to you guys. But the reason why isn't because of anything other than a desire to help people have quiet time daily with the Lord. So it's a hard thing for us to do. It's a hard thing for us to get in the habit of, but I want to pray for you right now. And so would you let me pray over you a prayer about this? Lord, I pray for everybody hearing this message that you will somehow invade their brain with a gentle or if need be not so gentle reminder each day to seek alone quiet time with you. And then grow us through that, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. So let's uh, seek God each day. Next, let's talk about listening because prayer isn't just talking. Prayer is also listening. And so our passage for this comes from Luke. Ah, come on, come on, come on, come on. Be in the mood. There you go. Luke chapter 7 verse 40. Now, this is an interesting little passage. The backstory behind it's pretty good too. First look at the passage. Jesus answers and says to Simon the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it, Rabbi. Now that's a pretty cool passage. But I like this passage, and there to me are three different levels of of enjoyment of this passage. I will confess I wrote this while I was pretty hungry. But it occurred to me that this is like a three-layer cake. There are three different layers I want us to look at on this passage. First is just this plain and simple truth that Jesus engages us. Second is a recognition of the backstory behind this passage, which is just delicious. And then third, I want to talk about faith's road, the road to faith, because I think we find that here as well. Start out with Jesus engages us. Now, there, there are a lot of people who will draw the cartoons of the guru sitting on top of the Himalayan mountain. And everybody, you know, who's got the big pressing question, they'll hike up to ask the guru, what is the meaning of life? Or uh, explain to me the mind of a woman. Or one of these other unfathomable mysteries of life. And God is not that way. This isn't Simon coming up to Jesus saying, Rabbi... I have a question for you. This is Jesus saying to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. I love the fact that our God is an approachable God. Yes, we can approach him. Yes, we can talk to him. But if we're not listening to what he's saying to us, that conversation is just a one-way street. Not the thoroughfare it needs to be. To make us all we can be. And to put us in the place we need to be for his kingdom. So I like that layer. I also like the layer of the backstory. The backstory is too good for us not to take a moment to look at. So if we go to Luke 7. Uh, I just. I, y'all have been, who've been in the class long enough know that I have a tendency. I have my favorite writers in the Bible. 
Luke's one of my favorite writers. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. That's nice. Would you like to come to lunch? And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. See, we eat sitting down or standing up or driving. They, they ate reclined. I mean, they, they would rest on an elbow and lay down. They had these couches. In fact, uh, a, a house that was a full house would have a dining room. It's called a triclinium in Latin. And it would be one that has these reclining couches in three different directions so that people could lie down on them, vertical, I mean, horizontal. And uh, um, that's what they would do. So Jesus is reclining. That's the way they ate. This is not him being rude. It's the normal thing. And behold, a woman of the city. (laughs) A woman of the city. This is a polite, uh, what, what do you call it when you say something politely? A euphemism, thank you. This is a euphemism. She was a prostitute or a whore, if you want to use that word. And I use that word, it's a harsh word. But she had a harsh job. And you'll see why that word can be used harshly here. Who was a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, let me say, she was not an invited guest to the lunch. She came in knowing that it was a place she did not belong. She came in knowing she was uninvited. And she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, which would be expensive. And you can infer from the story how she made her money to buy that ointment. She doesn't stand in front of Jesus. She goes behind him. Now he's laying down, reclining. But she stands behind him at his feet weeping. She's not sniffling with tears in her eyes. The tears are coming down such that they're falling on his feet. She wets his feet. She's got to use her hair to wipe off the tears. And she begins kissing his feet. These are the lips that have been for sale. And she's kissing his feet. And she anoints them with the ointment. This turns the stomach of the Pharisee. He is repulsed that this woman has come into his house. She's barged into his house. She's stripped him of his time with Jesus. She's making a spectacle. Everybody who's from that town knows who she is. They know how she made her money as a woman of the city. She's not woman and wife for the same words. She's not the wife for the woman of a man, a husband. She's the wife of the city. And Simon knows that and this is repulsive to him. He didn't bring Jesus in so they could go a-whoring. He brought Jesus in to have this holy conversation. To figure Jesus out. To see what this was all about. And when the Pharisee who invited Jesus in sees this, he says to himself, that's all I need to know. If this man had God's insight, if this man were a prophet, If this man could truly see what's not being said. If this man could read into her heart. If this man knew how she earned the money to buy the ointment. If this man knew what her lips had done that were kissing his feet. If this man were a prophet. 
He would have known who she was. He would have known what sort of woman she was who was touching him because she is a sinner. Was she the only sinner in the room? (laughs) No. Bless his little hypocritical heart. He was a sinner too. And that's where we have the passage. Jesus answering, answering something the man was thinking. The man doesn't say this. The man said it to himself, not to Jesus. That means he's thinking it. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, talk to me, Rabbi. Jesus said, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 days wages. That's almost two years of pay. The other, 50 Two months of pay. Figure out what you make in a year. One owes two years of that. One owes two months of that. Neither one of them could pay. He canceled the debt of both. Which of them is going to love him more? Simon said, well, I suppose it's going to be the one who he wrote off two years of salary. Then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You didn't give me water for my feet. She wet my feet by crying. She wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. From the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with expensive ointment. I want to tell you something. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She's loved much. And who's forgiven little seems to love little. And Jesus looks at the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? He's forgiving sins? Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't that an incredible backstory? I love that backstory. I can't tell the the passage without the backstory, but then we got to go to the third layer of the cake, Faith's Road. And this is something that's real particular about the writings of Luke. Matthew can write a gospel. He was one of Jesus' apostles. Mark can write a gospel. He followed, Luke, uh, uh, followed Peter around a bunch and wrote Peter's gospel. Peter was a follower of Jesus. John can write a gospel. John was an apostle. He followed Jesus around. Luke, he wasn't an apostle. Luke is a doctor from Antioch. Several days away from Jerusalem. Several days away from Galilee. Luke's a doctor who joins Paul on some mission trips, parts of them anyway. But Luke writes a gospel and he writes the book of Acts. And how does he do it? He does it. As an investigator. See he goes and he talks and he interviews people. He tells us that because he he says it at the start of his book. He says this is what I've done. I've went and checked this stuff out. Because he's a doctor he can even talk to women. Because he's a doctor he takes special interest in the virgin birth. Now Mary let's be clear about this. Exactly how did you get pregnant? And this is a case report I'd like to write up. So Luke's got stories that the other gospel writers don't have. But one of the unique writing habits of Luke is when his subject becomes a believer in Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus Christ. When his subject becomes a believer, Luke puts their name in there. So that you can go back and check his sources out. And to give honor to to, to the Lord for bringing them where they are. See, Simon, the harsh, judgmental, hypocrite Pharisee, 
I believe, based on the writings of Luke, becomes a believer later in life. He not only listens to Jesus, he listens to Jesus. I mean, Jesus, Luke didn't have to write it this way. Look back at the passage for a moment. If we go back to the Elmo. One of the Pharisees. He goes into the Pharisee's house. And while he's there in the Pharisee's house, all of this stuff happens. And then the Pharisee who invited him says, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus answers him and uses his name. And Luke reproduces his name. Well, his name's been there the whole time. He could say Simon the Pharisee asked him to eat. And he went into Simon's house. And while he was in Simon's house, and Simon this, and Simon said to himself, and da-da-da-da, no. It's a Pharisee, a Pharisee, a Pharisee. And then Jesus brings this about and says, Simon. And now, after this, look at every passage. It's no longer the Pharisee. It's Simon answered. He said to Simon, and it's Simon, Simon. He listened to Jesus, and he gave his life to him. And that's faith road. So I want to listen to Jesus. That's my lesson I get from this. That's the core lesson in prayer. Let me pray with you, and, and let's pray about this together. Father, we pause right now because we want to hear you. When we read these passages about your life, Lord, we want to not just hear with our ears. We want to hear with our heart. Transform who we are. We are here this morning, Lord, to give you praise and to give you worship, but to also hear your word. Speak to us. Change us. For the sake of Jesus, Yeshua, amen. Okay. Next uh, stop on the road is privacy. So let's go to privacy. And it is Matthew 6, 5 through 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Do you know what the Greek word for hypocrites is? Hypocrites. Hypocrite. We just get hypocrite straight from it. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they receive their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, when I was growing up, we lived in a lot of different places. Mom and dad moved us around a lot because dad's job transferred him in a lot of different places. And we went through a period, mom's here, mom, I don't remember the years, but I know it was third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, and half of seventh grade where we lived in Rochester, New York. That's um, a different kind of environment than Lubbock, Texas, the hub of the plains. <laughs> and I grew up in a family that, that where God was important and faith was central to our, our home and central to our lives. And I'm thankful for that. And one of the ways that, that faith was an integral daily part of our lives was that we would pray before all of our meals. We did not eat out very often when I was growing up. It was an expensive thing to do. But we would eat out to celebrate or on occasions. Mom would take us out to, to lunch sometimes. Most often when Catherine and Holly were gone and it was just me because I was the favored child. I'm joking. Mom and dad had no favorites. Um, and if they did, it was probably Catherine or Holly. No, they had no favorites. But I remember asking you one time, Mom, when we were in a restaurant. I said, why do we pray over our meals at home, but we don't when we eat out? 
And mom said, at this time and in this place, that would be something that would be real showy. We express our gratitude to God for our food quietly in our hearts instead of making a spectacle. And mom talked about this passage and she said, you don't pray for show. Now over my life as I became an adult and I was blessed to live in Lubbock and I was blessed to live in Houston and the days and the times have changed. We're in a different situation. So for example, last night, Becky and I had a chance to eat dinner with mom. We went to Rockfish right over off 1960. The food come, oh, <laughs> Miss Carolyn, yeah, Rockfish. Uh, the food came to the table and mom said, we need to say grace over the food. Which of course we would do. But it wasn't for show. It was a heart of gratitude to God that we had the resources to eat this fantastic food. That we had a kind young gal named Michaela waiting on our table. Trying the best she could to, to make sure that we were taken care of. We had some staff back there that were cooking this so that they could make a living. We had a lot to be grateful for to the Lord. And we didn't want to let that chance pass. But it wasn't a prayer for show. And we need to know the difference. It's the difference between praying sincerely or praying for others to, to be impressed with the fact that we pray. So as I've reached adulthood, I've found places and times where I do pray publicly for food. And that's probably most of the time. But there are also times where based upon who I'm with and what we're doing, where I think that the prayer would be more for show. Or at least it might leave that impression. So instead, I'm much easier talking to my wife or whomever also may be with us, just making a comment like, aren't we thankful to God for this food we're about to eat? So that I can get that recognition and gratitude expressed to the Lord without the show of, shall we pray? Though there are, I, I, I'm telling you, if you go to a restaurant, you see me most of the time, I will pause beforehand. I've got zero qualms letting people know that I love the Lord. It's not, don't pray out of embarrassment. It's just one where you need to be sensitive in my mind. So for what it's worth, this is a great time to pray. So can we pray? Lord, we want to pray prayers of sincerity to you. We want to pray because you are ready and listening to us and we can express praise and gratitude as well as petition before you with the way paved clean and wide by the blood of Jesus. His righteousness, Father, enables us to, to, to come to you and we're grateful for that. Amen. Okay, next. So privacy... Now we move to meaning. This is one I like. It comes from Matthew 6, 7 and 8. Pray with meaning. Jesus said, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. The word that's translated empty phrases is bata logeo in the Greek. Logeo is just the verb form of speaking. Um... Like logos is the word that's spoken. It's the verb form. Logeo instead of logos, the noun. All right? Bata is attached to the front of it. B-A-T-T-A. -T -T -A, bata. And it's an onomatopoeia in the Greek. A word that means what it sounds like. They would just bata, 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 bata. It's just babbling. Bata, 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 bata. It's, it is the ancient Greek equivalent of the Jewish Seinfeld, yada, 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 yada. If I were going to translate this passage with the right audience in mind, I could easily justify a translation. When you pray, 
Don't just say yada, 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 yada like the Gentiles. They think that they're going to be heard because they're just saying all of this stuff. Don't be like them. Your father already knows what you need. When I went to work at Fulbright and Jaworski, I, um, I'm out of law school. And, and I was a very poor writer. I didn't write well. Now, it's not because the Lubbock school system was inadequate. The Lubbock school system is probably the best in the world. I think most everybody knows that. But Coronado High School and my class of 598 people or however many there were, just under 600 in my graduating class, we were required to take a certain number of years of English. But somehow I had convinced Max O'Banion, may he rest in peace, our principal, that the debate classes I was taking and the other forensic classes, extemporaneous speaking, etc., should more than satisfy my English requirements for graduation. So I didn't really have to take my... I took more high school Latin than I did English. So I graduated without an ability to write well. I would split infinitives without any problem. To wonderfully write, sometimes you need to. I just split an infinitive there, to wonderfully write. I I would end sentences in prepositions. That's just where I was at. (laughs) I, I, I I, I, I didn't always have subject verb agreement. Because sometimes... He and she needs a plural subject or verb for some reason. So, so I, I wasn't a very good writer. I got to college. Now, Lipscomb University is basically the Lubbock of the universities in the world. That's an amazing school. But they allow you to clep, they allowed us to clep out of classes. Well, I could take a test. I could clip out of classes. So I didn't have to take co- English in college. I just test it out. Well, I go to law school. They don't teach writing in law school. I sort of do, but not really, not writing, writing. I didn't know how to write. That's okay. And then I get a job at Fulbright and Jaworski. Now, they generally only hire people from like, Ivy League schools. And the rumor was they only hired like the top 10 or 15% of the class. Now, those are nerds. <laughs> and if you're one of those people who was uh, top 10% from an Ivy League school, you're a nerd. <laughs> but that's okay. Because as Steve Jobs says, 20 years later, people call you boss. <laughs> I, I, I was a nerd, but I wasn't one who knew how to write. So the first paper I gave to the partner that had asked me for this brief, he handed it back to me and he said, I made some revisions with a a red pen. You'll see them on there. And I thought, see them on there? It looked like someone had bled on the paper. And, and then he said, I really, I really want to give you a book. I want you to read it, please. And he gave me this book entitled Strunk in White. The Elements of Style. He said, read it. Start with rule one, which was omit needless words. And so I really took this to heart, and I still read that book regularly. It's an amazing book, and it changed the way I wrote. Omit needless words is rule one. I, that rule so perturbs me, I'm trying to figure out how to get it down to two words instead of three. But I've never been able to do that in 35 years of staring at that rule. He's got that so compact. Omit needless words. There's nothing you can do with that to make it any more efficient, more compact, more fine that I can figure out. But that's, in essence... What Jesus is saying, omit needless words. 
You're not getting there because this is not like those papers we had to turn in in school where you've got to write a thousand word essay on this, that, and the other. So you think of every adjective and adverb you possibly can to get to the thousand words. I've got some English teachers in here laughing because you've seen the students do that, haven't you? That's just, okay. Now I'm going to cut the Gentiles some slack. The Greeks had a different God system than we do. They didn't understand the Lord God. They had this pantheon of gods that were really just supersized humans. Had superhuman strength, superhuman emotions, some superhuman abilities, but they were supersized humans and they had human limitations. So Zeus, the big daddy god, Zeus has got a temple in almost every region. Everybody wants to honor Zeus. Well now, what am I going to do if Zeus is getting prayed to by someone else? If Sarah is praying to Zeus, Zeus is listening to Sarah, i got to get his attention. I want him to listen to me instead. How am I going to do that? Well, I might dance around. Might wave my arms. Hey, Zeusy, 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 Zeusy. Try to get his attention. Get him to listen to me. Hey, you who wear the Zeus suit. Zeus suit, whatever it is. Oh, Zeusy, 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 listen to me, Mark Lanier, L-A-N-I-E-R. I live on Falba. Remember, I'm the one who brought you the dead chicken. And I plucked it before I brought it. Hello? Whoa. I mean, that's what they had to do. He might not be talking to Sarah, listening to Sarah. He might be asleep. Because their God slept. He might be on vacation. They took vacations. Hey! Are you there? Listen to me. And you got to give some warm up. And maybe the more flowery speech will keep him engaged. Zeus, it was a dark and stormy night because the gods can be beguiled by stories. Don't worry. Our God is listening. He's listening to each one of us. He knows what we need. You don't have to command his attention with a lot of words. You don't have to use these phrases. You don't have to draw his eye from wherever else he may be. Our God is tuned in to you. Tuned in to me. Tuned in to us. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for who you are. For manifesting your glory in all of creation. And for bringing your glory into our lives. May we honor you as God. May we seek you as God. May we serve you as God. For the sake of Jesus our Lord, through whom we approach you with no guilt and no sin. Amen. Okay, next. We've got about a little bit of time, not a lot. Let's go to the Lord's Prayer. And I want to ask you a couple of things about it. And I don't have as much time to deal with it as I'd like because I've taken too long on these other passages. But I'm just going to ask you a couple of things. We'll spend about a minute on each question. Here's the Lord's Prayer. Um, We know it. Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if we were reading it in Greek, that on earth as it is in heaven describes all of the phrases that have already come. So, hallowed be your name on earth. As it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth. As it is in heaven. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's where it starts. And then give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now there are some things in there. It's a prayer we're all very familiar with. It's a prayer we can all say. I suspect even if we're not believers, we can say that prayer because it's so common. But if you look at it in spite of its familiarity, I wonder if you don't find a couple of things in it odd. Do you find it odd that Jesus tells us to pray for God's will? I mean, he's God. It's his will. Why do I need to pray for it? I mean, my kids don't have to ask me to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do if I can. If it's right. I don't need Becky to say to me, Mark, eat. You know, you've got a lifetime in front of you. I want to urge you to eat. I mean, heavens, there's food right there that's good. I'm going to eat. Mark. All right, sometimes she has to tell me to take a shower. That's true. But those things that are within the ambit of my will, I do. Why would we have to pray for God's will? The reason why is because God didn't make us all machines. We're not like the heavens that live according to these rules of nature. Where our, we don't have to worry about the planet Earth all of a sudden deciding it wants to go backwards around the sun. There are these laws of nature that are followed. But you and I have been created in the image of God. And, and, and you and I have an ability to make choices. And we live in a fallen world. So God's will is something that we need to pray and seek to achieve through our lives and our energies. And it's right for us to see that and focus on that. This is not a situation where God's driving the train and we're sitting in the back seat. This is a situation where God's got us behind the steering wheel of the car and he tells us where to go, but our job is to make sure we're driving where he wants us to go. Do you find it odd that God's will comes first in the prayer? How often are our prayers, Lord, gimme, 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 gimme. What was the old Janis Joplin song? Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? <laughs> She's going to sing the whole song if y'all were down here. No, our focus needs to first, seek ye first the kingdom of God. We need to focus on his will first. Do you find it odd that the prayer is brief? Now Jesus has long prayers. But he's teaching us to pray with brevity. Because we're to understand that God already knows. Understand who we're praying to. Do you find it odd that sins are listed as debts? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. You know, as we forgive our debtors. Some people say the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In fact, sometimes when you're praying publicly the Lord's Prayer, you've got to kind of listen to figure out, are you praying with a Catholic or a, a Presbyterian? Figure out, are they going to, or an Anglican? Are, the, are these the group that say debts or is this the group that says sins? Well, the Greek word ophalemata means debt. But it also means, sort of, sin in this sense. Now there's a different word for sin, but Jesus will use them interchangeably. Because our sin is a debt. You know, Paul writes that, 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 that Jesus paid a debt on our behalf. Jesus forgave our sins, or another way to put it is, he paid a debt. I could not pay. He paid the price for my sins. So it works. Do you find it unusual or odd that this is plural? There we go. First person plural. Our Father and our Father in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us 
our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation. This is a corporate prayer. It's a prayer for everyone. This is a prayer everyone can pray to the Lord. And the last oddity here, do you find that odd that the last phrase is a gimme? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I mean, are we really worried that the Lord's going to lead us into evil? Well, of course not. Why does Jesus put that in this prayer? Because we are to recognize our dependence upon God is a dependence that leads us in the right way. We align ourselves with his will. This is coming right back to his will. Your will be done. Lead us not into temptation. You know, hedge us about. If we are left to our own devices, we will go into evil. And he does not want that. So we pray his will. Don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And he does so. So I want to close with a prayer, but I want to close with the Lord's Prayer. And I'd like you to say it with me. And we will say debts instead of sins. Will you pray with me? And then uh, next week, we'll have Brent continue uh, our study on prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God bless you guys very much. Thank you for being here.